This episode of Scandal Water contains adult themes and descriptions of violence. It is not intended for all audiences. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome to Scandal Water, where the tea is hot and the conversation lively. Your hosts, Candy and Ashley, will discuss a peculiar story somehow related to the entertainment industry. This podcast might not change the world, but it just might satisfy your thirst for an intriguing tale. Oh, it's that time of day. Tune in and hear what the ladies say. It's time to bend your ear when the silver screen appears. Stories about the stage and screen and everything in between. So come on and join the fun. The curtain opens in three, two, one. Hello, Ashley. Hello, Candy. Hey, I've got some interesting things to start our episode with today. Well, tell me, what are they? Well, one is a correction. Oh, dear. Oh, no. <laughs> no, it's okay. It's all right. Our friend and listener, Tommy, made a point of letting me know that there was an inaccuracy in our Betty White episode. Oh, no. What yeah. did we do? It's okay. It's. I think I think we can live with this. Okay. Tommy is a huge Golden Girls fan, uh-huh. and he pointed out, I mistakenly said something about Sophia and Dorothy being the ones who had the home, and then the friends joining, and he clarified that oh, wait, it was wait, wait. actually... Is it, is it Blanche's it's house? It's Blanche's house. And she put a notice on a bulletin board and they answered the notice? Is that right? Well, I don't remember. Okay, I well, remember. Tommy, I let me know if I'm right or not. Yeah, I wasn't a first-time watcher. So oh, okay. I, and that wasn't something that came up in the research. I remember we were just kind of speculating off yeah. the top of our heads. But I did recall that I think the situation was Dorothy was originally moving in and then Sophia like got kicked out of the retirement oh. center or didn't like it and somehow she joined as well. I okay. think was the scenario okay okay yeah you can you know more about it than i did because i didn't watch it oh, all it's the way been there. a long time since i've seen the early episodes but now that you said that that reminded me that they i think tommy tell me if i'm wrong that they answered a ad on a bulletin board like in a grocery store or something i don't know well so for tommy golden girls forever and it was blanche's house golden girls forever <laughs> blanche's house the second thing is, I thought this was so cool, Ashley, so I just thought I would share it with you. Two days ago, I received a message out of the blue, a little Facebook Messenger message, yeah. from my college roommate. She and I, her name's Shelly, we had fallen out of touch. Mm-hmm. We have not actually, I think, seen each other or spoken in like, I don't know, 12 years or something. And her little message said that she ran across our podcast <gasps> and she has been listening. Aww. And it was the sweetest note. Aww. And I think we're going to end up doing lunch now. Aww. And so I just thought, how cool is that that our podcast kind of helped me reunite with one of my friends that I hadn't talked to in a while. Hi Shelly, thank you for listening. Hi Shelly, you made my day. So I thought I would start with those. I felt like that was a really nice uplifting story to start with. It is, I like that. All right. Well, I'm not sure if the rest of our episode will be quite as uplifting. no. (laughs) But but, but there are definitely high points. (laughs) Okay, I think this is going to be a really good one. And I'm going to say one word that's going to give you a big clue, I think. Okay. Let's see what this calls back to mind. Suzanne! Natalie Wood. Natalie Wood. Suzanne Finstadt? What's okay. she done? Well, why were we so proud of Suzanne Finstadt? Because she was like a little, I'm getting goosebumps again. She was like a little dogged Girl Friday reporter. She was digging up all this info. Has she found something else? No, it's not actually about Suzanne. It's about how she inspired me. Okay. okay? We were so impressed with her and how this cold case that had been out there for, what was it, four decades? Yeah. Something like 40 years? Yeah. 
because she continued to push and find new witnesses and un, you know, earth new testimonies, that type of thing. It ended up pushing that case forward. It's obviously still not solved yet, yeah. but she's moved things forward. And I thought, hmm, with May being this theme of may I help you do help X, you. Y, Z. Thought, well, uh-huh. how about, inspired by Suzanne, may I help you solve a crime? Ooh, Suzanne! <laughs> so this is what we're focused on today. And I think it's hugely interesting because okay. you and I, of course, being the true crime fanatics that yes. we are, we are already all over yes. this situation, right? So the thing is, you don't have to be a Suzanne. You don't have to be like this writer or this investigative journalist with this true crime craze that's happened really in the last 10 or 15 years. Mm-hmm. We've had the rise of a lot of what they call armchair detectives or online sleuthing or web oh. sleuth. I mean, there's all kinds of terms that they're using now. So I was going to ask you first, yeah. what comes to mind when I throw those terms at you? Do you uh, have any? Us armchair psychologists. <laughs> well, that's true. <laughs> Um, I don't know. I would I would say people in chat forums, message mm-hmm, boards, mm-hmm. look at me from the 90s message boards or, or something where they were a community or YouTube comments where mm-hmm. people are trying to figure stuff out. Almost yes. like almost like the people who do analysis of trailers. You know, oh, today we had a, a lunch with the family and we were watching the Stranger Things trailer. And then we watched this guy who did a 16 minute analysis of the Stranger Things oh, trailer wow. and whole commentary, whole commentary. And I said, I'm just one of those people it's like guess I'll find out when I watch it (laughs) you know I didn't even think about all the depth that people go into on this stuff so that's what I think about interesting when I started digging in one of the things that that wait 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 you have to say the right phrase you did some digging that's what that's what they say in every crime show ever is I did some digging and blah 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 Well, here's lots of those uh, grave analogies. Here's what I unearthed. (laughs) How about that? So a lot of the people speculate that the podcast Serial is really Mm. what sparked a lot of this because, by the way, did you ever listen to Serial? I did not. It's the one about Adnan, correct? Yes, yes, I did. What did you and think? And I read the book. I was fascinated. Do you think he did it? Um, I think he needed a new trial. Okay. I definitely felt like there was some testimony that could have given new perspectives and mm. could have changed things. Mm-hmm. So I was upset that, and my understanding is, there was a push and at one point they said he was going to get a new trial and then they overturned it. Mm. And he's still in prison and I don't believe anything's happened. Okay. It, I, don't hold me to that, but that's kind of my understanding. Okay. I didn't research that part. But I was fascinated by the series and I I do see just from my experience, my observations, I can see that that did kind of kick everything off. Okay. I mean, I remember everybody talking about it, even in my circles. And I started listening to more podcasts and looking for more things like that after that series okay. ended. Okay. So that's rang true with me. On the other hand, Serial did not invent true crime. Sure. But somebody had the quote, which I love. They said it didn't invent it, but it legitimized it. Oh. It made it okay for everybody to talk yeah. about it and to do these things. Because they used to to have those little books that you would read the paperbacks Mm -hmm. that would be these dives into these crime stories yeah yeah that's true yeah 100 in fact i did the same thing you did i was i was kind of thinking well how far back does it go basically people have been fascinated by this forever i mean you can go back to jack the ripper yeah people were interested what was that the 1800s they're still interested in him absolutely absolutely and truman capote's book in cold blood came out in like 1966 or 1967 Mm -hmm. that was nothing but true crime i mean and that was hugely popular in 1924 is when they came out with 
True Detective Mysteries, which was this magazine that started out partly fiction, partly true crime. And the true crime part of it was so Took popular. Mm-hmm. By 1941-ish, I think, they just switched the name to True Detective to show like we have oh, gone true, yeah. de- true crime. And that magazine continued in the U.S. until 1995. And I think it went on in other countries longer than that. So uh-huh. it's been going on forever. It's not new. Even the idea of asking citizens to help out is not new. I mean, when we think about today, Crime Stoppers, Neighborhood yes. Watches, all the Facebook posts that right. say, have you seen this criminal? Or right. if you know this person, contact the police. That's been going on. I mean, that's that's all around us. But it was so interesting because I'm reading this book that you actually loaned me, Ashley, called mm. The Girls of Murder City. That's such a good book. It is good. In the book, there's this one part that talks about the murder of a 14-year-old boy named Robert Franks, who was, he was actually kidnapped and murdered in 1924. And before they had found the clue that was going to lead to them discovering the murderers, they put a call out in this Chicago paper, the Herald and Examiner, that asked the public to help out. I'm going to ask Ashley to read from the paper that asked citizens to help. How and why was Robert Franks, a 14-year-old heir to 4 million, killed? Police investigators may clear that up, but have you a theory now? Can you write a logical theory telling step-by-step how the crime was committed and what motivated the participants? The Herald and Examiner will give a prize of $50 to the reader who writes the best theory. The winner will also be eligible for a share in the $10,000 reward if his theory should aid in the solution of the slaying. The judgment will take place when the slayers are apprehended, if they are, and if they are not, upon the logic and probability of credence obtained in the written theory. The theory should be written in condensed, concise form, cleanly written or typed on one side of the paper and should be addressed to the city editor, Herald and Examiner. So they put that call out and within just a few days, they had received more than 3,000 theories. People writing in, all of them speculating about how they felt like that crime could have gone. And remember, they were going to get a reward if their theory happened to be true. Right. Of course, what ends up happening is there are some glasses left at the scene, which leads them to find out who actually did commit this terrible crime. Do you want to say their names? Because people probably heard of them. Leopold and Loeb. Mm -hmm. Yeah, very crime of the century is what they call that. Yeah. But the point is, this idea of getting citizens to help out is not new. Mm-hmm. But what we're doing with it nowadays has taken some new twists. And it's just kind of a fascinating topic, which, of course, is what we're digging in today. Nice digging. Yeah, digging into it. I'm gonna, how many times <laughs> Keep are going to say that? Keep yeah. it up. <laughs> so when I was thinking about it, one of the first things that came to my mind was this podcast that I have listened to since day one called The Murder Squad. Oh, okay. And it is co-hosted by Paul Hulls and Billy Jensen. And in fact, I reached out to... Billy Jensen, I asked if maybe he could share a little bit of information with me. I'm sure he gets about a thousand, maybe more emails a week. And so mm-hmm. I have not heard back from mm-hmm. him. But Billy Jensen, if you hear this and you want to like respond, we'd love to hear from you. Yes. But here's a blurb from their website for the Murder Squad that talks about the premise of their show. It says, each week, ride shotgun with retired cold case investigator Paul Holes and investigative journalist Billy Jensen as they attempt to solve an unsolved murder case using a variety of methods from routine shoe leather work to advanced technologies like familial DNA searches and social media geo-targeting. But their secret weapon in the search for justice is staring right at this page. You have been watching and listening to stories about violent crimes and investigations for years. Now is the time to put all of that knowledge and wits to good use to actually help solve a crime. Welcome to the Murder Squad. 
I need to start listening to it's this. It's very good. Yes. So what happened is these two incredibly experienced, smart, and witty gentlemen, both of them with, with amazing backgrounds. Billy Jensen is a true crime journalist who actually focuses on unsolved murders and missing persons. In fact, his little blurb on the same site for the Murder Squad says that after 17 years of writing hundreds of stories with no endings, he was fed up and decided to try and solve the murders himself using radical social media techniques. I like that. And it says it worked. He has solved or helped solve 10 homicides already. <gasps> Good job. So he is this journalist who has really turned towards this focus on solving cold cases. And he does all kinds of projects. He's written some books. He has another podcast, probably more than one other podcast, but he's very involved in all kinds of different things. Now, Paul Holes is the investigator. I mean, he has this huge background in forensics and, and what investigation. what a great last name for an investigator. Yes. Holes. <laughs> he's filling in holes. Yeah. The, he um, needs a catchphrase. He does have one. What is it? My favorite murder. <laughs> Karen Kilgariff gave him the, uh, well, she started it. I think actually the fans gave it to him, but hot for holes. Oh, gosh. <laughs> I'm in something related to solving crime. Not that he's cute. Is he cute? He's cute. Okay. Yeah. But anyway, he's the one who was behind finding the Golden State Killer. Oh, no, him and Patton Oswalt's wife. Right? Yes, absolutely. Yeah. But yeah, she definitely had a huge role in bringing that back to the public's attention mm-hmm. because he was the East Area rapist for a long time yeah. and she even kind of changed his name to the Golden State Killer mm -hmm, and got him back in the public eye yeah definitely she had a huge role in that and Billy Jensen worked on her book with her she worked with Patton Oswalt too so they are all connected I would like to say her name too because I hate just referring to her as Patton Oswalt's wife 100% she's an amazing woman Mm -hmm. Michelle McNamara all right thank you yeah well to finish that out Mm -hmm. Michelle McNamara was this amazing woman who had so many talents but she was also a writer and so not only did she push that investigation for Forward, but she was working on the book I'll Be Gone in the Dark yeah and then she passed away suddenly in yeah. 2016 and Billy was one of the people who helped to finish oh, that book okay. along with researcher Paul Haynes and her husband Patton, and okay. so um, yeah they were all interconnected and, okay. and that's how Billy and Paul I think also got hooked up to okay. this experience as well interesting I'd like to do an episode on that whole mm-hmm. thing sometime oh my goodness yes so in a promo for his book Chase Darkness with Me which is another book that Billy Jensen wrote his own book he explains why he thinks it's beneficial to utilize the skills of web sleuths so we're going to listen to just a short little clip so we can hear this from Billy himself what I think I could do this this guy's giving me a roadmap, and then I want people to take the, the concept in the book that citizens can actually solve crimes and go in a million different directions just as long as you follow the code don't interfere but you can help and the police departments need help. They're all underfunded. And if you ask any police department, why do you have all these unsolved murders? The first thing they will say is, we don't have the resources. They'll always say that. So why not use civilians? So that's one of the many reasons that I, in this research, and, and we'll discuss it as we move through the episode, but one of the many reasons why it's beneficial to have citizens out there trying to help solve crimes is right. because just the amount of people out there, the resource that right. we have in right. the everyday citizen versus what they have at their disposal in a police department. Right. Yeah, with so many cases that they're dealing with. The murder squad have actually solved a mystery mm-hmm. using a citizen helping them. Okay, what? Here's how it goes. I'm going to tell you about the case and then how it ended up getting solved. Okay. So the situation was in January of 1980, there was a lady named Helene Pruszynski and she had moved to Douglas County, Colorado. She was a 21-year-old Wheaton College student and an aspiring journalist. Hmm. 
She had just begun an internship at a local radio station. And on January 16th, she took a bus from downtown Denver to Littleton after work. And she would walk home from the bus stop. But this particular evening, as she was walking, she was abducted. By 1030 that night, her aunt knew something was wrong and called the police. But they discovered Helene's body the next day in a field. She was nude from the waist down. Her hands were bound behind her back. And she'd been sexually assaulted Mm. and stabbed nine times so the offender left behind dna evidence but the investigation went cold because at that time they couldn't do as much with that evidence right as technology advanced they did take that evidence and put it into databases but it just didn't go anywhere so the murder squad brought up this story told it again they always call for help from you know the the listeners yeah And this one listener named Jesse learned about sending in your DNA and getting hooked up through GED match, I think is how you say it. So she decided to add her DNA profile to the database. And she was contacted by the Douglas County Law Enforcement and told that her DNA matched to be a third cousin of the offender in a cold case. They asked her to compile her family tree so they could track this down. She did it. And she also had her parents enter their DNA. And then through all this work, through genealogy, they learned that the offender was related through her dad's side, which helped them again narrow Narrow it down more. And once the law enforcement had this whole genetic genealogy profile and they were working with other people, they were finally able to zero in on the offender and they found the guy who was 62 years old at that time, James Curtis Clanton in Florida. They trailed him to a bar. He ordered some beers. He would eat. Oh, he would, they took the mm, DNA. He from poured the... it into the mug, and then they got the, what they needed from that mug. Oh, yep, they... poor Jesse. She's like, I helped solve a crime. Oh, it's my family member. <laughs> But it's a third cousin. It's a, yeah. But somebody still. she didn't even know. No. Yeah, yeah. yeah. In December of 2019, that guy was arrested in Florida and charged with first degree murder and second degree kidnapping. So they managed to solve this crime. That's amazing. Thanks to this participant. That's great. And so this is one way that citizens can help solve crimes through this whole idea of sending in your DNA profile. And then it's a two step process. Like okay. a lot of people will send it into 23andMe yeah, or yeah. Um, Ancestry.com, but it's actually that second step of then letting it go to this I'm sure there are other places as well but the one that came up a lot was the one called GED match GED match I'm not sure if it's I don't know if you call it GED match or, okay but it's it's like capital letters GED and okay. then match okay so forgive me if I'm saying it incorrectly guys but this is the one that came up because remember when we were talking a minute ago about Michelle McNamara yeah, and yeah. Paul Holes and the whole Golden State Killer that's how they did that's that. that's right? actually how they did that yeah. they were the first ones. Oh, Paul, they, this they were. Paul Holes was the first one. They, oh. yes. So now let's talk about that story for a second. Well, my wish is already coming true. I said <laughs> I wish we would talk about that story. <laughs> <laughs> So Paul Holes and his fellow investigators are given credit for being the ones to catch the notorious Golden State Killer. He was behind just this awful, awful series of rapes and murders that happened across California through the 1970s and the 1980s. The rapes actually started around 1976 and and it escalated. It just got worse and worse. And I read the book and the offender was a monster, just Mm. beyond monstrous. You read Michelle's book. Is that what you're saying? I did. I read Michelle's book. Mm -hmm. But it wasn't until 2018 that they finally arrested Joseph D'Angelo over 40 years 
years that Mm. case had been out there hanging open. So what happened was they plugged the offender's DNA into, they had the idea of like, let's try this whole genealogy thing. And so they plugged it in and they kind of started tracing this family tree idea and it started pointing towards him as as it was laying out, like who could be related to this offender. Uh His name was one of them. Okay. And so they actually went and went through some of his discarded trash, I believe, and they got a tissue. Yep. It was a tissue they found in his trash. And then they ran that and they got their match. So he was actually the very first public arrest obtained through genetic genealogy. Wow. Fascinating. Absolutely. So basically this has now turned into a thing. Okay. The site, like GED Match was one that I saw a lot about because it is the one that they use for Golden State and it's been in the news a lot. So it's kind of the one I focused on. Again, I'm sure there are others as well. But most of the people who used to use GED Match, it was to find, you know, their family history. It might be somebody who'd been adopted who wanted to try to track down biological parents, Mm -hmm. you know, all kinds of things like that. But now it has opened the door for investigators to find criminals and especially since one of the things they brought out was there are issues with dna collection like there is that whole system called codis that we Mm -hmm, see like mm -hmm, on you know mm -hmm. ncis and all the pop shows put it in codis but there are issues there are all kinds of problems with not actually getting dna in there their protocols get missed or here's an example apparently you have all these criminals in jail but a lot of times they won't take their dna until they are released why i mean a protocol glitch i mean or people in mental hospitals they won't take their dna until they're released so a lot of times the offender is sitting in a jail and, and they, they don't, don't know it. they don't know it because uh. they don't have that person's dna in codis so it's been great to have another you know, they need to fix that situation, obviously. That's mm-hmm. a whole different thing. But it's been great for them to have this whole other way to try to find criminals, especially solving cold cases. And in fact, this was a 2020 statistic. I'm sure the number's way higher, but they said since the arrest of this Golden State killer, Joseph D'Angelo, over 150 suspects have been identified through genetic genealogy. Again, that's two years old. Who knows how many it really wow. is. But there's all kinds of controversy. The original owners of GED Match were criticized a lot for allowing the police to use the site for purposes that the users did not agree to. And by the way, they've now sold their company to somebody else and it may have even been sold again. So new owners, but it's been a controversial thing. Where they've landed is now people have to opt in. So on podcasts like The Murder Squad, there's a whole little section that tells you here is how you can add your DNA to places like Ancestry.com or 23andMe. And then it gives you the instructions. And now here's how you can also load it up into GED Match. Be sure to click the opt in button. Yeah, because criminals are Mm -hmm. not going to want to opt in. So it's a whole thing. And and you hear it a lot in their episodes. They'll make a call for people to help in that way. My sister Sherry is part of a Facebook group called Kentucky Mysteries. They also include in directions, again, trying to get people to, to help solve crimes through participating in giving their DNA. So back in 2019, that owner of GED Match at the time told NBC News, we are here for genealogists, not for law enforcement. On the other hand, law enforcement is here to stay. I feel a big obligation to make sure it's used properly Mm. so they're they're kind of caught in the middle Mm -hmm. and so this opt-in is is their compromise compromise it's a good compromise mm -hmm, and they say a lot of people 
people are okay with doing it. They have had a lot of people add their DNA. In fact, a lady named Cece Moore, who is identified as being one of the most prominent figures in the field of genetic genealogy, estimated that there are probably at least 500,000 kits currently available to law enforcement on GED Match. Wow. So one fabulous way that citizens are helping to solve crimes. Uh, Good job, citizens. A second way. You already hinted at this one. I have. You have. You mentioned it. Using social media. Oh. Tell me what you know, this is a sad case, about the Gabby Petito case. Oh, yeah. Gabby was a uh, social media influencer, uh, aspiring influencer. I don't I don't know how big her audience was, but she had a TikTok page and she was talking about the van life mm-hmm. where people will work from, they, they will quit their nine to five job and they will get a van and they will travel and do remote work. I don't know what her remote work was. She had just set off maybe on this cross country travels with her boyfriend slash fiance mm-hmm. and he came home without her. Yeah. And everyone was was like what happened and they found where they had been pulled over by the police for some reason they'd been fighting and the police cam footage was released and people were after the fact of course saying why did they not pick up on these Mm -hmm. obvious signs but she was eventually found and i believe wasn't it someone who saw the video who said i know where that van is yep that's and that's what we're getting to okay yeah yeah that's the that's the big key point yeah you you've got a lot of the details there yeah gabby petito was 22 when she and her fiance Brian Laundrie left on that trip that you talked about. It was supposed to be around four months long and they left July 22nd of 2021 and they were intending to go to places like Colorado, mm-hmm. Wyoming, Utah, who knows where all. And their goal, as you said, was to advance her her career goals of wanting to be this travel influencer okay, on travel social media. Okay. Mm-hmm. And so her plan was she and her fiance were going to post a lot of photos and videos of their adventures in order to to really kind of build this audience and Mm -hmm. and move forward with that with that goal she had set so as you you remembered she referred to herself as a van life vlogger and she would use the hashtag adventure blogger a lot in her posts okay but by august 12th we have public evidence of problems because Mm. there was that 911 call that was placed by um, someone who had seen a confrontation between gabby and brian They had said they saw Brian hit Gabby, and that's why the police in Moab, Utah, were dispatched to pull the van over. Okay. Mm -hmm. And it says it's unclear if they knew the details of the 911 call, because as you remember, we could see the police body cam video. You could see how upset she was, which broke my heart. But ultimately, I think she kind of was protecting Brian, and I think... they, she was saying that she hit him. Yeah. They ended up being separated for the night, but then they got back and continued on their journey. Mm-hmm. And so that was August 12th. By August 24th, she was seen checking out of a hotel in Salt Lake City. And her mom, Nicole Schmidt, said that was the last time she heard, actually it was the next day was the last time she heard from her daughter, August 25th. And that's when Gabby told her they were headed to Wyoming. Also on August 25th was a day that the van was spotted at Grand Teton National Park. And that was the last time she made a post on her Instagram account. Now, for a while, they thought that was the last sighting, but it came out later that there was a couple in Louisiana who did report seeing a commotion at a Mexican restaurant in Jackson, Wyoming on August 27th. They said that Gabby was crying, Brian was angry, 
and they're now thinking that was the last sighting mm-hmm. publicly of mm-hmm. the two of them or of Gabby. So after that, Gabby's mom got at least one text, maybe two, I can't remember, that just didn't seem right. Didn't she sound like her. Didn't sound like Gabby. She just didn't believe it was her daughter. And it was September 1st that Brian returned from the trip alone. In their van. In her white Ford van. In her mm-hmm. van. Of course, red flags all over the place. Yeah. Um, her parents reported her missing on September 11th after not hearing from her for two weeks. Of course, they were trying everything to see if they could track her down. Brian would make no public comments. He he invoked his right to remain silent. He didn't want to cooperate with the police. And then and then he left for a hike on September 13th and didn't come back. So the authorities officially declared him a missing person on September 17th. But according to the family's attorney, the FBI was notified that night by the family that he had not returned. So that, which, by the way, those are the kind of details they're trying to prove because Gabby's parents have now sued Brian's parents. Uh, Okay, so we'll come back to that in a second. So how did they find Gabby? Here's where those citizens come in. Uh Yeah. One of the big points they made was that this was a case that was unbelievably publicized, not just in the news, because it was all over the news. You and I remember, I'm sure you remembered as well as I I do, do. but it was all over social media too. Like it was everywhere. And so people were- Because she did have some followers. Mm, That's a good point. So they were- wondering where she had gone to. Mm-hmm. And of course, there's a little criticism too, because the point that's been made is that, you know, she was a, a white woman yeah. and her disappearance, she was this petite, cute little young thing. And they're saying, would, would somebody else who was not that same demographic have gotten yeah. the same attention? So there was some criticism right, there too. Right. But the point is, because it was so widespread, everybody's speculating, everybody's making um, inferences about what's happening. But in this case, these two influencers named Kyle and Jen Bethune, who lived in a bus with their three children and four dogs for two years, they're the ones who are kind of unofficially credited for helping to get Gabby located. They said a friend contacted them and said, hey, weren't you guys in Bridger Teton National Forest around this same time that Brian and Gabby were supposed to be there? And they realized they were. So they started because, again, they were influencers themselves. They had a lot of video a footage. A dash cam, right? Mm-hmm. Then they have a dash cam of them driving through. Oh, I think you're right. Yeah. I think that's yeah. what it was. And then they spotted their her van on their dash cam and said, oh, this is her van. Absolutely. Yep. It's uh. exactly what it said. They were looking through their video footage from their Wyoming trip. And the quote from Kyle was, lo and behold, we saw it clear as day, Mm -hmm. talking about this white van that matched the description of the one that Gabby and Brian were traveling in. So they actually, Jen was the one who immediately called the FBI, and the person she spoke with directed her to a website that had been created for people to share tips about the Petito's disappearance, and she uploaded her video there, but they also released a copy themselves on their own platforms. And Kyle said, we know the power of social media. The video went viral, and Gabby's mom ended up reaching out to that couple seeking information. That led investigators to search the area, and they found Gabby's body, ultimately. She was found September 19th at a campground north of Jackson, Wyoming. It's where the couple had stayed in late August. so sad. Yeah. It was immediately declared a homicide, but they later found out after their investigation that she had died by strangulation. So just to kind of quickly finish this out, because obviously there's so much more to this. So the general story was that now they're on this big hunt for Brian and after weeks of searching for him and again because of the social media everybody's involved you remember they were putting calls out to who's the bounty hunter dog 
Yeah, they were like even they're putting calls out for him to help with it. But they finally found Brian's belongings in a clearing that had been underwater for quite some time. So that made it even harder to kind of investigate. But there were some of his belongings there. And one of those things was a notebook. And so they did confirm that he died from a self-inflicted gunshot wound. And in that notebook, he admitted to killing Gabby. There's still some people who are suspicious of that, right? I've heard that people are kind of like, really? That area had been searched before and now they go back and it's there. And how did the notebook not get all soggy if it was underwater and I don't know there's some there's I know that my conspiracy mind I've heard some people say that they don't think it's him hmm, they that's think it's somebody else that his parents have helped him again alleged do not know that his parents did anything I have not followed this case past when it happened but I remember there being buzzes of that like mm, this seems suspicious very suspicious mm. so we'll see whatever yeah. happens I'm going to confess I was focused in on the citizen crime yeah, solving yeah, yeah, angle yeah. so I didn't look really deeply yeah. I, everything I saw seemed to indicate they felt like it was definitely Brian but but you're exactly right about the suspicions against the parents because Mm -hmm. it's it's going on right now there was a lawsuit filed by Gabby's parents against Brian's parents and it's supposed to head to a jury trial they wanted it to be a jury trial in August of 2023 according to a a news report that literally came out three days ago so I'm hoping that's the latest news there it was a civil lawsuit against the parents accusing them of knowing their son murdered their daughter the Petito's daughter and that they had tried to help Brian flee the country Mm. and the lawsuit is supposed to seek more than $100,000 in damages for causing Gabby's parents pain and suffering along with mental anguish I think it's I don't think the monetary thing I think they're just making a point they're making a statement Mm -hmm. yeah well so we've now talked about two different ways that the average person like ourselves could potentially help solve a crime how about we take a break before we talk about the last one that sounds good to me okay It's time for our May giveaway. For a chance to win your very own Scandal Water t-shirt, simply visit our Scandal Water podcast Facebook page and share the post labeled May Giveaway. The winner will be announced on May 31st. Cheers! So we've already mentioned Serial, which, by the way, was a spinoff of This American Life. But what I don't think we said was that that whole investigation into the case involving Adnan was led by an investigative journalist named Sarah Koenig, Mm -hmm. and she was the producer of This American Life for 10 years. So she was an an experienced investigator. Okay. You know, this is a woman who had confidence. She wasn't wasn't a police person. She wasn't a detective. But I'm assuming an investigator investigative journalist has some investigative skills you know what I'm saying so same for Billy Jensen you know Billy Jensen is a journalist and has some of those wonderful fabulous skills that journalists have because they know how to dig into dig again dig but but they know how to find yeah they know (laughs) of tea take a drink of your tea I will Got it. But they know how to to go after the story, how mm-hmm. to find evidence, how to research and, you know, all those wonderful things. And they had the confidence. In fact, mm-hmm. there was a wonderful quote from Billy. I loved it. He said, while police have a lot more power in the sense that they can get a search warrant as a writer and as a podcaster, I can do a lot more. If a suspect tells the police, I don't want to talk to you. I want my lawyer. They can't talk to them anymore. I could keep going until oh. someone says you're harassing me. <laughs> oh, dear. 
<laughs> so, but his point is, it gives them a little more freedom. And, yeah. and that was something else I saw where they talked about sometimes people are afraid maybe to tell something to a police officer or a member of law enforcement, but they might open up to somebody who seems more like a lay person, mm. not as intimidating, maybe not mm-hmm. as afraid that there might be some kind of a punishment if mm-hmm. they happen to have been involved with something wasn't quite on the up and up. Nefarious. Or, yes. So I make that point to say that while I have the utmost respect for these investigative journalists, I am not saying that it's easy for them to do that. I have even more respect for an average citizen mm. who does not have that background, that that whole Someone career, like me, perhaps, yeah, who whole, just went out and solved a crime. Right. You know, somebody who's not trained in investigation, yeah. doesn't have the confidence Who's of, just read Nancy Drew and things like that. Right. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. And there are some that are out there doing it. Oh. Have you heard the case of Chris Lambert and his podcast, Your Own Backyard? No. I have listened to the entire thing, and it is fascinating. Ah. So this is a fella who by day is actually a musician. He bills himself as a singer-songwriter and a mm. recording engineer. Mm. But while I, I think this actually was kind of... A little pre-pandemic, but I think a chunk of this happened during the pandemic. He got off on a tangent. He kind of stepped outside of his normal career path, and he became a podcaster specifically focused in on trying to solve this cold case that had touched him personally. So back in 19... I'm getting a twinge. I may have... Keep going. Do you think you know it? I might. Okay. All right. Well, when he was eight years old, he heard about the disappearance of a 19-year-old named Kristen Smart. Do you know what I'm talking about? Keep going. Well, he shared that it scared him. Like, yeah. he remembered thinking, wow, this can happen to people. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, like, it was, there was so much talk around it. And as an eight-year-old, like, it kind of rocked his view of the world a little bit and yeah. his feeling of safety. Yeah. And then they put up a billboard of Kristen, this picture of this beautiful 19-year-old girl, which, by the way, she was just an amazing girl just mm-hmm. wonderful and it was this billboard that was asking you know have you seen I don't mm-hmm. remember the exact wording but it, that idea of if you know something please yeah, yeah please let us know and it stayed up for more than 20 years oh and and one day it hits him like one day probably around I don't know in 2017 or 18 because his podcast was I think in 2019 but somewhere around in there he's like whoa this faded picture of this girl is still up she's never been found yeah And it just kind of, it just touched him. Mm -hmm. And so he decided, I'm going to see what I can find out. And so he started investigating on his own. Yeah. And started this podcast, which is fabulous and has basically gone viral like I think so many people have listened to it I feel like I have seen this on one of my 48 hours dateline something I think that I remember now that you this is all coagulating in my brain and Mm -hmm. I think I've heard of this but I'm not heard the podcast so didn't it get solved Yes. He solved it? Or well, he helped? Here, let me tell you the story. Okay. Here we go. So Kristen Smart was 19 years old when she disappeared back in 1996 after leaving an on-campus party at Cal Poly University. Yeah. She was officially declared dead in 2002 because they'd never found her. And the case was turned over to, you know, a different sheriff's office. And in 2007, they had it. They were suspicious all along of this one fella named Paul Flores. And in 2007, they they actually did dig up around um, his mother's home searching for the remains of this girl, but they, they didn't find anything. Okay. So in April of 2021, because of the efforts of this 
podcast and this podcaster, Chris Lambert, there was an arrest. Their prime suspect, Paul Flores, and his father, Ruben Flores, were arrested for crimes connected to Kristen Smart's murder. Paul, who had been a longtime suspect, was a fellow freshman at California Polytechnic State University when Kristen disappeared. He has now been charged with first-degree murder in the killing that allegedly happened as he tried to rape her in his dorm room. Mm. So, I mean, again, we could talk a lot about this. It's just the saddest story, but it was a party Mm -hmm. and she was very affected. Mm -hmm. And they don't know whether she'd been given something because that was a lot of people gave testimony. You'll hear it in some of the episodes. A lot of people talked about how he would give drinks mm. and they think that he was allegedly, you know, again, mm. all this is speculation, but the testimony and these people believe that he was giving girls things, mm. whether it was eye drops or some kind of date rape drug that affected them. And I didn't so know you could use eye drops. Well, apparently you can Ooh. and it has terrible effects. Oh yeah. Okay. So, so she was very incapacitated and they last saw her. They were trying to get her home and she'd made it almost to her dorm. He's one of the last people seen with her and I believe it was a situation where he was like, I'll get her home safely. Mm. And she, yeah. So the dad though, Ruben Flores, has been charged as an accessory after murder because authorities say that he helped hide the body, Mm. which has still never been located. A prosecutor alleges that her body was recently moved from that they have like moved her uh, out and away from Ruben Flores's home somewhere else in an attempt for it not to be found that's what they think has happened when the sheriff announced the arrest he specifically gave credit to chris lambert for helping to draw worldwide attention to the case and helping again because of all this attention and his work helping to bring forward several key witnesses i'm so glad they gave him the credit yeah. And said, this is what did this. I, I really am glad about that. Yeah. And after the arrest, he continued to investigate because he had several people who wanted to come talk to him and tell him more. Because once it was officially named, these people have been arrested. We really think they did it. I just listened to this actually within the last two or three days because I had heard the whole series. I can't remember. I think it was like six episodes maybe and or eight. And now there are two more that are follow up where I listened to this testimony from different people saying, oh, yeah, we're convinced it was him like we know he did it why didn't they say anything before or now that they know they're thinking back and going oh i'm piecing stuff together i think some of them probably had been interviewed before but some probably had not like they didn't realize to go talk to these people because it wasn't necessarily related to that crime of what happened to Kristen smart it was more about the offender you know yeah and and they were they're corroborating like he did these things i mean several people were talking about how he would give drinks to girls Mm. and some instances of awful things that happened after girls drank something that he gave them. Okay. You know? So that that type of thing. There was there was more, but that would just be an example. So a quote from ABC 10, a news article, Lambert, meaning Chris Lambert, the podcaster, conducted dozens of interviews following the arrest of Flores and his father. Lambert was overwhelmed by the number of people who were interested in speaking to him about their experiences, relationships, and knowledge of the suspects. Okay. Yeah. So this kind of, gosh, this got me i i just found this this morning i was looking i I wanted to know is that billboard still there yeah they've replaced the billboard the billboard is now still a picture of Kristen smart but this one says justice for Kristen and directs people to their website and i I believe they have a scholarship in her honor so Mm. they've they've changed it now yeah so a feel-good story you know a story that makes me happy that this man's work ended up helping to bring peace and closure 
closure mm-hmm. to this family who's suffered all this time, you know, justice, these people who've gone about their lives and gotten away with doing mm-hmm. some horrible things, yeah. you know. However, okay. <laughs> just to be fair, we'd like to be balanced. There are a few negatives that have come up around the idea of the average citizen helping to solve crimes. Okay. Can you predict what some of those might be? Meddling. Mm-hmm. Um, it, getting in the way. Yeah. Go, getting in danger. Yeah. Endangering themselves, I would think. Okay. That's the first yeah. thing I would think those of. Those are good. Well, there were actually several. Okay. So I think it's good for us to think about this too, because right. I'm going to confess I'm one of those people that gets drawn in and fascinated. I'm going to go do like, it. Yeah, I'm like, oh. I'm starting a new career <laughs> starting today. Yeah. But there's a case I, I've heard about on a couple of different podcasts, just heartbreaking about those two young teenage girls who. The Indiana girls. Yes. Gosh. But apparently, you know, they had those little audio. and Go down there. Those little clips. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I think they actually had I didn't see it but I believe there's a there's a video clip as well yeah and they said that after those got out so many people just latched onto that and were making inferences and unfortunately some of them started like naming and sharing pictures of Facebook friends of those girls, they started falsely accusing some people of being the killer and some very harsh circumstances for these people who are being accused. Who may or may not have anything to do with it. Right. And definitely some of them are innocent because a lot of accusations were being made. Right. Right. Yeah. And in fact, apparently the... Indiana Sheriff's Office investigating the case of those two girls actually put, please stop. You are ruining innocent people's lives as a post on their Facebook page. Oh, gosh. Yeah. I mean, and that made me stop and think. So one caution is to make sure that people aren't making false accusations. Yes, we yes. can't, we Don't can't just go jump to conclusions. No holds barred. Yeah, it, it's always, you always have to abide by innocent until proven guilty. It should not be guilty until proven innocent. Don Cecil, a criminology professor and an author, she had a quote where she said, there have been instances in the U.S. in which the police have asked people to stop interfering as they had identified an innocent person as the suspect. So I think your point earlier, this, this builds on what we just said. We don't want any false accusations. But also, we want to make sure we're not actually holding up an investigation or interfering in a way that might mislead or kind of take them off on a different trail. Right. Mm -hmm. So there's another thing to watch out for. Even if it's not a false accusation, sometimes it can really be hurtful to people involved in the crime. Right. If it is an accurate accusation, what about the wife or the husband of the accused? And Mm -hmm. this this would be devastating for them, too. Or even the victim's family. Oh, yeah. They said a serial dealt with the murder of this beautiful young teenage girl named Heyman Lee and they said her family was very troubled by the focus and this fascination with the story of their child's murder. Yeah, that's something that I do think about. You know, we we talk about true crime as mm, entertainment, mm-hmm. and it shouldn't be entertainment. It should be a cautionary tale. It shouldn't be something that we... These are people's lives. These are mm-hmm. real people who really have loved ones, we hope, and people who miss them, and we shouldn't make light mm-hmm. of that. Like, oh, 
I'm so glad another murder case or anything, you know, just it's, it's hard. And I didn't really think of it like that till you and I started covering Mm -hmm. things. I'm like, Oh, these people still have people who are out there and I don't want to say things about them because this is their loved one. And this is, it's just, it's hard. It's really hard to walk that balance of bringing attention to the subject without sensationalizing it. Yeah. Being respectful. Yeah, absolutely. 100% respecting that these people have been through the most horrible thing Mm -hmm. ever. It's not, it shouldn't just be entertainment, Mm -hmm. you know, like that's, that's yeah. Well, they said that it reopened wounds for them Mm. and a different situation was uh, the family of a Chinese man who had been murdered in 2003. They threatened to sue producers of an upcoming film based on his death because they just didn't feel like they didn't want this to happen. Like this Mm -hmm. was their private tragedy. Yes. They did not want it to be turned into, as we keep saying, entertainment. Entertainment. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And to kind of take that a step further, there was a quote that talked about true crime is often focused on the offender, almost kind of glorifying them a little bit. Yeah. And sometimes there might be killer-themed merchandise or wrapping paper or tea towels. And talk about disrespectful. Yeah. So that's that was another point that was brought up, that it's the victim. It's right. The, it's I think one of the podcasts I used to listen to, I haven't been able to lately, but it's called Best Case, Worst Case. And they would mm-hmm. never name the offender. They would only name the victims yeah. to give honor to them. Yeah. I think that's what they used to do. Mm-hmm. So I mentioned her earlier, but Don Cecil, that criminology professor at the University of South Florida and the author of a book called Fear, Justice, and Modern True Crime, she wonders if true crime could kind of twist our perceptions a little bit. Like it might cause us to have distrust in authorities or our justice system and that that's something we have to be careful about because... I mean, obviously, we always want to make things better and we want to acknowledge, you know, things that should be improved or, you know, where there are where there are glitches and all that. I mean, I don't think that's her point. I think her point is making sure that we don't turn it into us against them, Mm -hmm. against the system. Mm -hmm. You know, like we want to make sure we support the people who are trying to solve cases and do these things to honor victims and and ensure justice, not turn into, you know, antagonists against them. Fight the man. Yeah. Now... Same lady, Miss Cecil, says, here's a quote, It's great when a podcaster unearths new evidence that is reputable and can help, but I think those instances are rare. So her concern is that it may happen, and when it does, fabulous, but she worries that when all these different listeners who have no investigative experience jump in, sometimes it can waste a lot of police time and resources because they're getting all these tips, all these theories, all these things to chase down that really may have no validity whatsoever right and we've said it before it could be that unqualified armchair sleuths could do more harm than good if they are causing distress to the families using insensitive language when talking about the crime or the victims possibly even prejudicing court cases Mm, that's true yeah yeah and this is interesting This made me think because this was brought up as an example. Did you watch the Netflix docuseries Crime Scene, The Vanishing at the Cecil Hotel? No. Ron Howard was the executive producer and I watched it. It was a four-part series and it focused on the 2013 disappearance of Elisa Lamb. She was from Vancouver and when she was 21, she took this solo trip. She stays at the Cecil Hotel. She did not realize that it was in kind of um, a not so 
so safe area. It was on Skid Row, just east of downtown Los Angeles. And in the opening episode, they give a lot of history about the hotel and how many deaths had occurred in that hotel. I mean, it was disturbing how many people had died there. And so they talk about how she goes missing and you're following through and they show, I almost, we probably should put the link if we can find this. They show this footage. It's from this elevator. Like, you know how they have a camera? that ended up in the water tower? Yes. You have heard about it. I have heard about it, but I haven't seen the series, so keep telling the story. Well, that video clip from the elevator creeped me out. What happens in it again? I wish I'd watched it again. Um, Don't, it'll creep you out. (laughs) (laughs) Don't do it. She acted so oddly. You see her in the elevator. She punches buttons for several floors. The door stays open. She sticks her head out. She kind of like looks funny. You see her like kind of shrink into one corner of the elevator like she's hiding. At one point, she's making these gestures with her arm. I mean, she's just acting so oddly. and Like she's fighting a ghost or something? Well, you could have thought that. I was like, does she think somebody's getting ready to come into that elevator and she's hiding? Is somebody Ooh. like kind of right around the corner? Like, what is this situation? Yeah. And But it really got me. And then, of course, as you said, on February 19th, a maintenance worker did find her body in a water tank on the hotel's roof. And, of course, it was her. And a coroner's report released four months later said there was no evidence of physical trauma. And then it starts to come out that she'd had a lot of um, mental health issues. She took medication to treat her bipolar disorder. And I think she was having issues. Had she taken it? Had she not taken it? And they, they end up calling it an accidental drowning. Here's what got me. As I was going through... I think it was one of those situations where you probably could have edited it down and made it fewer uh, okay. episodes than they had. But as I was following through, they would do all of these little cuts to people who were speculating, the armchair sleuths, like yeah. theories and, and people weighing in. And I was going with them, Ashley. You A lot right? of them, I was like, oh, yeah, I think uh. so, too. I mean, of course, some of them, I was like, I roll. You know, no, I don't, you know, you're off on that. Mm-hmm. But you, I had so many theories going through my head. And by the time it was over, I really did believe it was an innocent accident really yeah and it made me stop and think because had I just jumped to conclusions based on how I felt halfway through that series or halfway through Mm -hmm. you know just the first episode or just after watching that elevator video by myself with no other information where she ended up how is that an innocent accident where you end up in a water tower well, I, it's been a long time since I watched this, but there was access to it. You could oh. get up there, and I mean, I think there was so like a... So she was just maybe having an, a, they a, think a, she, a break, mm-hmm, a mental yeah. episode. Yeah, I think it was something like that. But it made me think about how careful we have to be yeah. not to just jump to these conclusions. Because one of the things also was, as I recall, there was one person that a lot of people assumed had was responsible or involved and and that man like had suffered depression Mm -hmm. and he he had harassment and i mean it affected his life Mm -hmm. i also was kind of like you're on the bandwagon suspicious i mean i remember thinking that too and so it it made me think it made me think armchair psychologist so we've talked about three different ways citizens could help solve crimes but also some of the things to be careful about about. Mm -hmm. what are your thoughts well shoot i was ready to start my career as a 
armchair detective and now I'm like, I don't know, I'm probably doing better right where I am, which is not being an armchair detective because it's so hard. Mm -hmm. It's so hard when you're presented with one side of the story not to assume, Mm -hmm. but then sometimes your assumptions are correct. So what do you do with it? Yeah. I guess you got to take it on a, I don't think I should be a professional fake detective, but I think you should take it on a case by case basis. If it's local, if it's something that happened around you, be very cautious about who you point the finger at, because these are people's lives. These are people who are affected, but it's also the people that are left behind. Like this poor fellow who didn't do anything, but he's having damage to his life too. I don't know. I, I, um, I don't know. I don't know where I land with it. I feel like help if you can, if you have a legitimate provable clue, then mm-hmm. yes, you should get involved. But if you don't, if you're just going to go, I never liked that guy. And mm-hmm. you're going to hop in there and go, well, you should look at this guy. Cause just, he just looked at me funny one time and I don't like him. Then don't do that. Yeah. Listening to you, you're helping me kind of solidify my thinking. And so you've made me come up with two points, I think. Okay. One is evidence-based. Yeah. Like, it's all about evidence. It's not about opinions or feelings or intuitions. Although sometimes those can play into it. You can have an intuition, then you can look into it and find your evidence. Yeah. It's always better if you start with the evidence. That's true. But but yeah, because a lot of t- sometimes you can find the evidence to back up whatever you want, mm-hmm, you know. But mm-hmm. but I think evidence based is huge. And then the second thing is the I'm going back to the murder squad. I'm going back to where we started. They have rules. Mm. They have rules that they say every time. And one of those rules is you contact them if you think you have some tips or some information that could help solve the crime or police authorities. You don't ever dox someone. Oh yeah. You oh, don't. Yeah. And no. You, so I think I think that's part of it. I mean, and doxing so everyone knows is publishing their uh, their address, their phone mm-hmm. number, letting oh, yeah. people know who they are publicly. That's yeah. that's my definition of doxing. Is that what you mean? Yes, absolutely. Yeah. But but even on a lesser scale, you also don't make accusations. You yes. don't put out anybody's names. They yes. they say don't name names. That's yes. one of their rules. Don't name names. So there wouldn't have been a situation, for example, if people were following those rules, this guy would have been just fine. The mm-hmm. one we were talking about in the the uh, water tower. Yeah, the water tower case. He'd have been fine because nobody would have named his name. Nobody would have been contacting him or making it mm-hmm. you know but I think accusations people want against that 15 him. minutes of fame of being the one that cracked the case mm-hmm. instead of doing what's right they want to do what's fast and also we we get so passionate you yeah, know we I, th- do. I think we immediately get emotionally involved people with these cases we've been talking about today you get emotionally involved these are mm-hmm. stories mm-hmm. these are heartbreaking stories and you feel like you their lives yeah these are lives that are impacted you feel like you know these people you want justice yeah and I think that that's part of it is just in some cases, we go so emotional that we stop being cognitive. Right. I think we need to go back to our the lady who inspired this episode, sort of, is Suzanne. Suzanne's mm-hmm. doing it the right way. She's playing the long game. Mm-hmm. She is doing the research. She's not publicly accusing yeah. that I know about, but she is trying to uncover stuff and just saying, I want to get to the truth. Mm-hmm. So she's seeking the truth. She's not seeking fame. She's not seeking her 15 minutes. She wants to get justice for Natalie. Yeah. It's your motivation, I think. Motivation and process. Mm-hmm. Both. Yeah. Well, I think um, I think we've come to the end of our May I Help You Solve a Crime. That was cool. If anybody out there has ever helped solve a crime, I'd be interested. <gasps> Ooh. Yeah, reach out and let us know. I will say one last thought is I feel safest on the cut and dried ones. Like if it's a situation where Facebook says, do you know this person? And there's yeah. a picture of somebody, you know, I walking know out of a bank. I, I either do or I don't. Yeah. Okay, I can respond to that. <laughs> yes, yes, I can help here. <laughs> I'm good. All right. Well, how about... 
a big cheers to all those people who are out there, whether mm. they are the average citizen yeah. or whether they're a detective or an investigative journalist or yeah. whoever they may be that are trying to find justice for mm. these victims and their families. Mm-hmm. Cheers to you. Cheers to you. This episode of Scandal Water was executive produced by Candy Thomas, that's me, and Ashley Raymer Brown. That's me. It was researched and written by Candy Thomas and edited by Ashley Raymer Brown. All music was written, composed, performed, and mixed by Josh Martin. The artwork was designed by Matt C. Adams, while our website was developed by Joshua Reith. If you like what you hear and you want to help keep the scandal water brewing, please go to our website, scandalwaterpodcast.com. Just click on your podcatcher of choice, then hit follow to subscribe. And while you're there, you might as well leave us a five-star rating and review. And don't forget, it's always more fun when you share your tea with others. As a reminder, this podcast is purely for entertainment purposes. The thoughts and opinions of the host during each episode of Scandal Water are their own and do not reflect the opinions of any future guests advertisers or clearly professional psychologists thanks for listening